Welcome to the MSD Animal Health Podcast. On this podcast, we interview people working across the agriculture industry to bring you the latest disease information, insights into our technology solutions, and discuss relevant industry topics. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Frank Mittelerner, who is a professor and air quality specialist at the University of California, Davis. Frank has been helping the livestock sector become more sustainable with research and science communication for more than 20 years. I'm delighted to have you in the studio today. So over the last few weeks, you've been touring around Europe, and obviously you're in Ireland at an event this week. So whereabouts have you been, or, or what have you been up to? Yeah, it has been a whirlwind from Finland to Germany to Scotland, and now here to Ireland. And, uh, well, I basically uh, was a speaker at various conferences, very interesting ones. This week, Frank, in Ireland, we went to the CAVI Sustainability Conference. What did you present at that conference? So at this CAVI conference, I gave two talks. The first one was um, about food security and how we uh, feed a, a growing global population without wasting all natural resources. The second talk was really more about greenhouse gases uh, and here particularly about methane. Uh, how to quantify it, how to mitigate it, how to turn something that's generally considered a liability into a potential asset. And I guess after the event, there was a lot of um, great interest in what you presented. There was an awful lot of information. So for the purpose of this podcast, we might just kind of dive into both of those presentations and we might kind of run through some of the key take-home messages and maybe as an industry, how we can communicate that better to the wider society and wider public. So if we look at the first presentation, um, so that was how to feed the world without wasting it. I noted there was a slide on global greenhouse gas emissions um, by each sector, and that was from the FAO. I guess, what percentage does animal agriculture contribute to greenhouse gas output? So the United Nations FAO, uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, estimates that about 14%, 14.5% of all global greenhouse gases caused by human activity are from livestock. And here the two sectors that emit the most are beef and dairy. And so even on that topic, there was a there was a range of different livestock sectors, I guess. So you just mentioned beef and dairy are the most, or contribute the most. But maybe what percentages globally are they contributing uh, to greenhouse gas emissions output? So globally, the beef industry contributes to approximately 6% and the dairy to 2 to, uh, to, to 3% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. So then another slide that you had was looking at population statistics. And I guess you made a great analogy that over your lifespan, the population will have trebled, moving from 3 billion to nearly 10 billion people. So I guess where is the source or where is the fastest growing population around the world? Yeah, there are several hotspots. First of all, most developed countries like um, European countries and American countries uh, are pretty stable with respect to human population increases. But there are two hotspots. The one is South, Southeast Asia, and the other one, uh, and that's the major one, is Africa. Uh, South, Southeast Asia will increase about uh, 40% for zero of, uh, of their population, human population that is, and Africa over 50%. And uh, there are many countries in Africa that actually increase population-wise by over 100%. And what that means is that every decade they're doubling their population. So needless to say, that's a major challenge because regardless of how good you might be producing food, mm. if you're doubling your population every decade, you run into challenges. 
and you know we talked beforehand about food security um, and also the pressure on natural resources so let's talk maybe first about uh, food security and food waste you had some interesting figures there so to feed that future population we probably need to look at what we're doing in our own kitchens at home and how we're managing our own food yeah this is uh this is a troubling statistics that the united nations fao again the food and agriculture organization um, with a seat in rome has released which is that in most developed countries so that's the u.s that's european countries and so on uh, we are wasting about 40 percent for zero of the food that's produced and that is at the consumer level meaning in our kitchens and restaurants and that's you and i 40 mm. percent now what I find even more troubling is that in many food insecure areas of the world, many of the developing countries, uh, losses are huge as well. There they don't call this food waste, it's called food losses, because these losses occur more at the producer level, on fields and in transport from the fields to processing centers and markets. In many cases, the technology doesn't exist to bring the harvest from the field uh, to the next step. And so 40% is a number that even applies to developing countries. So I think we have our work cut out globally of reducing those massive losses, uh, both in developed and in developing countries. Aside from the actually food waste, we also, you also, sorry, talked about um, our natural resources and the mm -hmm. pressure on our, our natural resources. And you had a great uh, demonstration involving your business card and sheet of paper. So do you want to maybe talk through that analogy and kind of explain um, the pressure that's on our natural resources? Yeah, certainly. So um, oftentimes people can't really wrap their mind around uh, how limited we are with respect to the resources we have to grow food. Now, as I said earlier, uh, I'm a little over 50. And when I was a little boy, we had 3 billion people in the world. Three. Today we have nine. So we have tripled human population on this planet. But the land we have available to feed these people, and the fresh water and other resources like fertilizer, nutrients, and so on, they have not tripled. And what that means is that we have to become a whole lot more efficient globally on how to grow food. And we need to make the best use of all agricultural land we have at our disposal. And here, it oftentimes uh, troubles me when I hear in much of the media that we should simply take land that's currently used for animals, for livestock, out of livestock production and grow crops instead. Why that doesn't work is something I can show you with a simple uh, presentation here. So imagine this sheet of paper here being the entire surface of the earth. If I now fold this sheet of paper, and I fold it twice, then you have approximately the size of a postcard. And what you see now is all the land in the world. The difference between the whole sheet and this is water and ice. This is the land. Now, this business card of mine here uh, illustrates the area in the world that is used for agricultural production. So this is all the land in the world, and this is all agricultural land in the world. Okay, right. So if I take this business card now and fold it into one piece that's two-thirds and the other piece that's one-third, um, then I go ahead and I rip my own business card into pieces to illustrate that the two-third piece of my business card 
is what we call marginal agricultural land. Marginal because here you cannot grow crops, by and large. You cannot grow crops because it's not uh, moist enough, there's not enough water, um, or it's not fertile enough, or it's too steep or too rocky, and so on. You cannot grow crops on two-thirds of all agricultural land. We call this land marginal land. What do we do with this marginal land to grow food for people? We use ruminant livestock, meaning cattle and goats and sheep and so on. Why? Because they are the only species in the world that can convert what grows on that marginal land, which is cellulose-containing grasses, and they convert the cellulose, I should say they upcycle the cellulose, into human digestible uh, nutrients. Without those ruminants, we could not make use of two-thirds of all agricultural land in the world. Now, the remainder of my business card, the one-third, is what we call the arable agricultural land. This part of, of the world is uh, fertile enough, there's enough water to grow crops. But think about this. We have three times more people on this planet throughout one person's lifetime, and this is how much we have available to grow crops. Are people sure what they say when they say, let's get rid of animal agriculture? Meaning, let's get rid of two-thirds of all agricultural land at a time when we are growing so fast as humankind. I don't think that can be the solution. So, in my opinion, we must make the best use, not just of the arable land, but also of the marginal land. It's an important part of the overall solution. Frank, yesterday you had a great analogy um, with regard to the impact that our food choices can have on climate. Do you want to maybe talk through that? Yes, oftentimes uh, people um, say that we shouldn't just concentrate on reducing greenhouse gases uh, from agricultural production, but we should also reduce greenhouse gases by just eating less animal source foods. And so uh, I thought it was quite interesting. I, I didn't do this research myself, but I've studied people's uh, publications who did. Uh, comparing some of the more extreme food choices, let's say going 100% plant-based, you know, vegans, for example. And please don't take this as me uh, talking down on vegans. They can eat what they want, and just like everybody else, that's not my my business. But just to look at an extreme form of nutrition and what that does to emissions reductions. If you were an omnivore eating everything, animals and plants, and you were to decide to go vegan for one year to save the planet from climate change, and that's what some people claim they do, then that would reduce your carbon footprint as an individual by 0.8 tons of CO2 equivalent units, 0.8 tons to go vegan for one year. Now you will ask, is that a lot or not? Indeed, yeah. Well, I'm just back, or I just arrived here, coming from the United States, and this flight generated 1.6 tons per passenger of CO2e. Meaning, I would have to go vegan for two years to offset this one flight from the United States to Europe, just to give you a size comparison. So whether or not that's a lot or not is up to your individual interpretation. But going vegan for two years equates to the emissions of one transatlantic flight per passenger. 
if an entire country like the United States were to go meatless Monday, for example, it would reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases in that country by 0.3%. So the reason why I'm critical of these, um, of these activities is because I think they put us on a wrong path to solutions. Uh, suggesting to people all you need to do or what you mainly need to do is change what you eat and then we'll go in the right direction. And that is not the case. What we need to do is we need to focus and laser sharp focus on the main culprit of climate change and that is the use of fossil fuels. And all this talk about eating a burger or not is one that distracts us of that main, of that main objective. And just picking up on that point, what you said about the growing population, um, we discussed as well over the next few years, that's really going to come to the fore, not in first world countries, but really in developing countries in terms of food security. And it will really bring rise to the research that's going on to really determine where the most pressure is coming on the environment uh, in terms of emissions, pollution and so on. And I really think we are in a good position here in Ireland. Um, when that does come, because um, our debate will be defended with the various amounts of research that's been done both at a Tagus level but also at a global level. If we move on to the second slide, Dick, you were talking about how managing carbon from cattle can be part of our climate solution. So I guess the first point on that was around, again, the global methane budget. So could you maybe elaborate on how methane differs from other greenhouse gas emissions? That it has its own budget with both sinks and sources. Yes, so methane is a potent greenhouse gas, okay? It can trap the heat from the sun very well, uh, much better than CO2 does, okay? So that's why people consider it a troubling greenhouse gas, and I agree it is. But methane is significantly different from other greenhouse gases insofar that it's not just produced with various sources, like fossil fuels and animal agriculture and rice production and... Um, wetlands and so on. It's not just produced by these sources, but there are processes destroying it. In other words, there's an atmospheric removal for methane, and that's currently not considered. We are considering this, the sources, but not to the extent needed, the sinks. Uh, but that's important because there's a process in the atmosphere that destroys methane. It's called oxidation. To be precise, it's called hydroxyl oxidation. And that process destroys a methane molecule uh, in about a decade, a little over that. And the same thing does not happen to CO2, which has a lifespan of 1,000 years, or nitrous oxide with a lifespan of well over 100 years. So what that means is, because this gas is not just produced but also destroyed, a constant source, I should say, a near-constant source of methane, such as a constant cattle herd, produces methane, but an almost equal amount of methane is destroyed, meaning a constant source of this gas does not add to additional, additional warming. Now, that doesn't mean methane doesn't matter. If we were to increase methane over time, let's say by growing herds, then we would add additional warming, and that would be troublesome. We don't want to do that. So, but if we keep it constant, then we hardly have any additional warming. And most importantly, and this is what my entire research career is aimed at, if we manage methane, if we control it, if we reduce it, we will reduce warming. 
And that is part of a climate solution that we in animal agriculture can be part of. If we reduce methane, we reduce warming. If we reduce methane by enough, we can offset other greenhouse gases that we also produce, getting our sector to become climate neutral, reaching a point of not causing additional warming. And that is where the goal should be, in my opinion. And if we go even further, even beyond climate neutrality, then we can offset historical com contributions of our sector or the, the, the contributions of other sectors, like the fossil fuel sector, and then sell credits to other sectors. Okay? That's already happening mm -hmm. in parts of the world, California being one of those. Mm -hmm. A lot of great information in that. Just to go back on where you mentioned about sinks and sources, Ireland's covered in grasslands, hedgerows, forestry, and in a lot of cases we have very healthy soils. So what part do they have to play um, in this cycle? Are they sources or are they sinks? Yeah, it's true. When you look at Ireland from space, you see an emerald in the ocean. Okay, So you, you see this green place, which is green because of what you just described. So the question is, do those uh, grasses, do these other um, uh, vegetation types, um, do they function as a sink for carbon? And the answer is yes, they are a sink. Um, we don't really know under all conditions, under all soil and vegetation types, how much they sequester, meaning how much they take on, but they do take on carbon. And if we leave the soils alone, meaning if we don't do tilling, then that carbon stays in the ground. It is estimated that healthy soils can capture about a third of all human-caused carbon. So soil management is a very important tool in our fight against climate change. And farmers and foresters are an important part, actor, in this field. Second to that, you had mentioned that it's important that we don't increase or add to the methane that's being released into the atmosphere. With that, there's obviously pressure to maybe reduce the herd. What's your opinion on that? And what part would that have to play in the overall challenge of, of tackling methane? Yeah, so I hear this a lot, uh, that people, particularly those who are very critical of animal agriculture, suggest let's just cut herd sizes. That, they say, would be the best way of reducing methane and other greenhouse gases instantaneously. Well, I'm quite critical of this assertion because if, let's say, a country like Ireland were to get rid of a third of their cows, then that reduction of herd size would not lead to a reduction of the demand for the products. The demand for the products would still be there. And if Ireland is not the place where that demand is met, then it might be Germany or Brazil, some other country in the world. They would just increase their herd sizes, satisfy the demand people have, and with it, take over the emissions that used to come from Ireland, and now they are elsewhere. So you are trading and not reducing. You're trading emissions from one place to another, a process called leakage. So if you want to reduce emissions, then do it. But don't move them from one place to another, because a greenhouse gas molecule, regardless of what it is, doesn't care for whether it's produced here or elsewhere. It is a global gas leading to a global phenomenon, which is our warming. I guess from a policy point of view and our global powers and, and governments and so on, is that being missed? Is that argument actually being missed that if we reduce it in Ireland, it will be done elsewhere? 
No, it's actually well understood. It's a process called leakage. Um, those people who ignore it, ignore it for a reason. Okay. Because when you look at grazing and livestock grazing, there's only certain parts of the world that can actually do that. And obviously we are, we go above and beyond. Uh, maybe other countries will be New Zealand, Chile and so on. Would you ever think there could be a scenario where those countries that are maybe best at growing grass for grazing for livestock should nearly be accredited a greater budget for methane compared to other parts of the world which are maybe fed more intensively or you know the feed comes from externally into that country for feeding livestock well yeah absolutely now you have to consider this uh, a country like ireland uh, exports about 90 percent of the food you produce nine zero okay so if you weren't doing that then somebody else would have to take that on under conditions that it might not be as beneficial as, as the ones you have here you have an incredible um, climate and soil and so on to grow that plant material that these animals can eat and uh, from which they can upcycle nutrients into some of the most nutrient-dense foods you can, you can think of, which is dairy products, meat, and so forth. So in my opinion, and that's related back to my first talk yesterday, this 2050 challenge of needing more food for a growing global population needs to use resources like grasslands and like ruminants that conduct processes that are powered by the sun, facilitated through photosynthesis. That's a beautiful thing if you mm. think about it. Okay, You're not putting external energy into it. You have the sun, you have the process of photosynthesis converting non-human edible nutrients like cellulose into highly digestible and bioavailable nutrient packages uh, these animals produce. So why wouldn't you make use of that? Now, in my opinion, uh, it needs to be internationally understood that countries like Uruguay, like New Zealand, like Ireland, are producing more of these products than other places, but they do so because they have these resources. And we should be glad that there are places like this that produce that. But in my opinion, it's kind of unfair then to burden these countries with, with all of the, the greenhouse gas loads. Because if a country like Saudi Arabia or Jordania or Libya imports that food that you produce, but you get burdened with all the emissions and they don't, even though you're producing it because there's the demand in these countries, well, then I don't see how that is a fair accounting scheme. And, and even yesterday, we talked about even the oil and gas, that on the oil and gas industry, it actually follows to where that product goes to, and then it's, say, taxed in that country. Yeah, this is called emission trading. Mm -hmm. So let's say um, Norway, that extracts a lot of uh, fossil fuels from the ground, uh, does not get burdened with respect to the carbon footprint of these products because they are burned elsewhere. So if you are a country like Norway or Saudi Arabia or so, then yes, you're extracting all that fossil fuel that eventually gets burned, but it's not getting burned in your, within your borders. You're exporting it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And you're importing all the food, and for that food, other people are burdened again. So you are clean as a whistle. Indeed. Look, it's a very interesting topic and debate, and hopefully over the next months and years that will um, maybe balance a little bit and maybe a little bit more credit will be given to countries that can maximize their resources in terms of 
against their output in a very sustainable way. Just to move on and to kind of move down a different avenue, we might look at um, maybe some of the research that's been done at UC Davis, but also... Firstly, do you want to maybe just outline how the different gases warm the planet uh, and the lifespan of those gases and, and I guess the role those gases have to play in the overall environment? Mm -hmm. So there are three main greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide. And methane and nitrous oxide are most often compared to CO2, to carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide has a global warming potential, a so-called global warming potential of one, methane one of 28, and nitrous oxide one of 265. So methane is much more potent per molecule, and nitrous oxide tremendously more potent than CO2. So there's a difference in the potency of these gases to trap heat from the sun. But there's another difference, which is, and I alluded to that earlier, methane is not just produced, but also destroyed. And because it's also destroyed, its lifespan is much shorter. I call methane the fast and furious. Furious because it has a punch to it, but fast because it's short-lived. And that fact has an impact on the behavior this gas has on warming our planet. So if you have a gas like CO2 that's only produced but not really destroyed in the atmosphere, then it's cumulative. The, the concentration goes up the more oil, coal, and gas we burn. But... On the methane side, because that gas is not just produced but also destroyed, a constant source of that gas will lead to a constant amount of warming, not an increasing amount like CO2 sources would, would cause. So this is really important in our understanding because what that means is um, that if you have not just a production but also a destruction of this gas and you then add to reducing of that gas, then you can get to a situation where you destroy more than is being replenished. And when that happens, then the methane concentrations goes down, and with it, the warming goes down. And there are different ways of achieving that through mitigation. Looking into some of the research at UC Davis, what new practical methods have you and your team uncovered over the last few years? Yeah, so the main focus of my lab, of all my research activities, um, is around reducing air pollutants and greenhouse gases, such as methane. And here the main focus has been on feeding uh, cattle, beef and dairy, feed additives to reduce methane and other greenhouse gases, such as nitrous oxide. And we have uh, looked at things such as um, essential oils and tannins and seaweed and uh, other molecules like 3NOP and so on. And we found that while there are about 30 of those additives, 5 to 10 actually work. And some of them reduce enteric methane, which is the methane belched out by cattle, by anywhere between 10 to 40%. So I'm very bullish looking at our results to say that within the next five years we'll have these tools at the disposal of our producers. Okay, So this is one, one thing that we have put a lot of work into. Another one is related to the animal manure. Um, this is what the state of California has mandated, namely that our farmers deal with manure emissions. And here we found that anaerobic digesters uh, have the capacity of capturing methane and then you can take that methane, which is really a form of energy. You can either burn it and make power or make fuels from it for transportation. That you can take that methane, and which is often perceived as a liability, you can take that methane and make it into an asset. 
into power or into fuels. And you can make a sizable chunk of money by doing so. So this is what gets people's attention, that we not just reduce a liability, and therefore that's good for the environment, but we can increase the income stream of a farmer. So that really gets people excited, and that has led to a situation where, where we now have not dozens, but hundreds of farmers jumping onto the construction of anaerobic digesters. We call them covered lagoon. They are making fuels from it, and they're getting credits, carbon credits, called low-carbon fuel standard credits. There are also others, and these are sizable chunks of money. So it's not all about money. We all understand that, but if it's not cost beneficial, then uh, it's, it's so much harder for farmers to adjust and adopt. Well, as we know, farmers do like to make money. So if, if there's opportunity, they'll definitely go after. But uh, other technologies that we're that we know is uh, the vac- there's a vaccine being potentially or is being created in New Zealand, um, certain feed avid- additives and also even a bolus. These also can be great tools, as you said, to add to that toolkit for farmers and industry to use to, to tackle this challenge. Indeed. Uh, on the experimental front, the New Zealanders have worked on a vaccine, a methane vaccine. It's not uh, ready yet for, um, for prime time, but they're working on it. So vaccine is one. Uh, feed additives, I already spoke about that, uh, or them. Uh, there are numerous of them, and some of them have great potential. Um, there is a new way of dealing with methane, which is through breeding. There are companies that have um, developed a genomic tool to identify whether a cow is a high methane producer or a low methane producer. And using that tool, you can select for low producing methane cows. And uh, those companies doing that uh, have stated that over the next 20 to 30 years, they can reduce uh, an equal amount of methane, 20 to 30 percent. That's a sizable chunk through genetic selection. So I repeat this. So we have a potential vaccine. We'll have feed additives. We have uh, genetic selection through breeding. Um, And... That in itself is already awesome, I think. But in addition to that, there are also now attempts to take the active ingredients that you normally have in feed additives and put them into a bolus. And that bolus is then lodged in their digestive tract. And it slowly releases that active ingredient. The, the one that was developed recently in New Zealand is claimed to have 60 to 70% reduction of methane. If that were true... We'll speak about a game changer. Mm. So, but the take-home message is this. Within the next five years or so, we will fill up the toolbox for our farmers, helping them to reduce emissions from both the animals and the animal manure. We want those farmers to be part of a climate solution. This is not some greenwashing. This is methane reduction that leads to warming reduction. And that's where we need to go. From the sounds of that, the future of livestock and particular animal production is in safe hands. There's a lot of research. There's going to be a lot of tools available for the farmer's toolkit to use in their battle or in their uh, fight against climate change and particularly reducing uh, methane gases. With that, Professor Frank Middlerner, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to come in and have a chat with us. Thank you for visiting Ireland and thank you for presenting at the conference this week. With that, I'd hand over to you for a final comment.
Yeah, so first of all, it's a pleasure. Every time I visit Ireland, I meet so many wonderful people, and um, it's always a treat for me. Um, to me, it's really important for farmers to know this. You're not alone, okay? You're not alone. There are organizations, there are universities, and so on. The individuals like myself and many of my colleagues who have you in their mind and on their minds, and um, we want to assist you to get to a point where you can produce food, do it well, as you always have, but do it also by optimizing sustainability on your farm. We are not just changing a narrative or so, we are changing a mindset. We are changing the mindset of people to take these issues seriously, to quantify them accurately, to mitigate them aggressively, and doing so without financial burdens. So with that, best of luck with you, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon. And I think just from, I can speak on behalf of the Irish farmer, the industry, and even the global agricultural community, that you know we really would do appreciate the work that people like you and your team do. And uh, we look forward to maybe having a chat in the near future again. Thanks Thank very much. Thank you. Thank you.